0: Well, brothers and sisters, remain standing, if you will, and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. This morning, we will take a look at what is commonly known as the judgment seat found in verses 31 through 46, even though our focus this morning will be on those first three verses. So, beloved, let's ask our Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Now, our great Father in heaven, we come before you in need of enlightenment. Lord, we ask you for understanding, to give us understanding. We ask that you would open our minds and give us the capacity to understand this doctrine of final judgment. We also ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive this truth and to act in accord with it. That our understanding would guide our actions the way we live, our lifestyle. We pray, O Lord, that this divine truth, the final judgment, would be a sobering truth to dictate how we will spend the rest of our days from this day forward. Give us, Lord, all of the various other things needed, O Lord, to persevere, to stand true and faithful, And Lord, to be a great light and encouragement, not only to your own glory, but to all of our brothers and sisters. Lord, that we would not act in a vacuum, but Lord, openly and publicly for the edification of your people and to the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ Jesus, our Lord and King. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, hear the word of the living God. But when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, and then he will sit on his glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent you did it, to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. And you did not invite me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them. Truly, I say to you. To the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Last week was a very convicting passage of Scripture, and this morning, I would say, a sobering one. Our Lord continues to emphasize this accountability, this reward and punishment that is offered in the text that I just read before you. Our Lord is is establishing for His listeners not just that duty owed to him and to one another, but that there is going to be on what we call that last day, a reckoning, a final day of judgment. As Christians, beloved, as We understand our Bibles, historically Christians have understood the the history of man to be linear. That is, God has always existed in eternity. God has never not existed. But when it comes to this world that God created, there was a beginning and there's going to be an end of what we know of this human experience in its Fallen and redemptive condition. We are going to continue on past that day of judgment. That's not the end of our existence. It's just the beginning of a different kind of existence. For the righteous to everlasting life. And for the wicked to what Jesus called eternal punishment. But the world that we live in, as we know it, as we are experiencing it, is on a schedule. God in his sovereign providence has determined the day in which he will return in Christ and settle all human affairs. We all have a court date. We all have a court date set and we don't know what day that is. The Bible tells us no one knows but God in heaven when that day will be. And these parables have been been enforcing upon the listeners of Jesus and upon us, the readers of his holy word, the need to take his absence seriously. Multiple parables address this absentee sovereign, this absentee king, this absentee landlord, emphasizing also that he is going to return. He's going to come back, and when he comes back, there's a reckoning that's going to happen. The teaching, the sobering teaching of the final judgment or the certainty of the final judgment, which is our doctrine this morning, is to sober us. Up. It's to remind us of, of this, this, this time frame that we live in, that it's not just a reincarnated circle of life. Yes, in this linear understanding of history, there are cycles and seasons and epochs and times and ages, dispensations. But yet all on a linear fashion and all coming to what we might call a terminal end where some will be greatly refreshed and excited and enter into the joy of the Lord and others will not then the question and the reason for the teaching is so that we would certainly assess which is ours right which one belongs to us here this morning in your conscience you know Your conscience, you know. And we read the description of the sheep and the goats. We all, I'm sure, began to examine even our own deeds, did we not? On where do we fit in? What excuses have we given? What sacrifices have we made? All of those things come into play when we look at a text like this one. I guess the title of the sermon this morning would be fitting just simply stated the certainty of final judgment. The certainty of final judgment. Not only the title of the sermon, but it's certainly the doctrine that we will spend this morning focused on. Let me unfold the parable or the teaching and then we will begin focusing on the certainty of final judgment. In verses 31 through 33, there's the reality or the certainty of final judgment found in those verses. Stated right there in verse 31, the idea is that there will come a day in which our Lord comes back. But when the Son of Man comes, in his glory, that's the estate that our Lord will return in. He will come, He will return, and He will come in this estate of full glory. Now what does that mean? It's not just that it would be a radiant, blinding light. That's not it. The scriptures speak of this glory being in all of His authority, in all of His majesty, in all of the pomp, in all of the, the accolades, and. Everything that is bestowed upon him as the son of man, as our mediator, as our prophet, as our king, he shall come with all of the authority and the pomp and the, and the pageantry that is deserving of a king of this nature, this estate unrivaled and uncompared. There's never been a king that has ever existed that will rival this headship of the Son of Man. When he comes, it will be staggering in the pomp and the pageantry and the, the entourage of these angels that he comes in. Be no mistaken that he is the Son of Man. He is the King of glory and he is worthy I mean that's your, that's the impression you're going to get. He comes in his glory that he is worthy to settle all accounts. He's followed with his angels, mighty angels, glorious angels. And you <laughs> We won't be able to we won't be able to pretend to be dead, as some of our brothers have done in the past, like John and others. And we will stand in the gaze of this presence of glory and power and authority like none other. You know, when the president comes to town, they shut down the roads. You know, they make way, right? They, they He flies into the airport. They want to make sure there's no possible chance of anybody doing harm to the head of the state, right? To the head of the nation. And so they make way for him. and And there's this entourage of security and police force. And it's impressive. And it's... Usually decorated with the you know the nation's symbol, the American flag, and it's just it's it's designed to give this impression of authority and glory of the nation. How much more this arrival? He's not going to come as he did the first time in the belly of a virgin. Waiting to be birthed in a manger. No, sir. Not this time. See, he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He has been blessed and given all of the rewards for his sacrifice and the laying down of his life. He has been rewarded to the hilt of his glory. And he will come back again in the array, in the presence, and in that power of that glory and authority. That's the picture. And you have to imagine that Jesus' is listeners, and you have to imagine the modern Christian church today saying, what? so what? Well, they certainly didn't believe that Jesus was going to, that possessed any authority, and they certainly didn't believe that he was coming again. Not his enemies. And there's an over- there is a very popular infection in the modern church today that is even questioning whether or not there's going to be a final judgment. It seems that Christians today are, when I say Christians, I mean professing Christians, have imbibed upon this idea of universalism. And it's something that continues to gain ground in professing Christian circles, and it should not. It's a heresy, and it, should, it has been squashed and put down, and we will do so this morning, and we should continue to openly battle such doctrines and heresies and those who teach them. So verse 31 tells us not only that Jesus is coming in his glory, he's going to come with his angels with him. He will have an entourage with him in display of this glory and authority. And notice the end of the verse. It says that he will sit on his glorious throne. Now I admit I have spent time thinking about What kind of throne? And I don't know. Will he bring something with him? Will the angels come and bring a throne worthy of this king? Is it possible? Sure. How will this judgment take place? What will it look like? We don't have the finer details, do we? But we have enough detail here in this particular text To sober us up and for us to begin to consider how we will spend the rest of our days. And verse 32, as you might expect, what's worthy of such a sovereign with this kind of authority, with this kind of power, display of power, his authority, this throne, what's worthy of this? Well, that all the nations would be gathered to him. The whole host of all who have ever been born will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's what will happen. That's going to take place. And he will put his sheep on his right and his goats on the left. Or the goats, not his goats. His sheep, the goats on the left. So what we see there in that first three verses is this certainty of final judgment. In verses 34 through 40, we see the righteous commended and rewarded. The righteous commended and rewarded. And rewarded. In verse 41 through 46, we see the wicked condemned and punished. The wicked condemned and punished. So let's open up this doctrine. Let's open up the doctrine of this final judgment. I'm going to mainly focus on Matthew just for the sake of this, the book we're in. But what I want to highlight to you, what I want to bring and impress upon you in your mind is that there are hundreds, hundreds of scripture that directly state something to this idea of the judgment of God, And hundreds of scriptures that imply something of the in judgment. I mean, it is just the the Bible is filled with this idea of a God who is just, right? Fully perfectly, holy, just in all he does and that there assumes that out of his justice there would be a reckoning or a rendering or an accountability given to this God who the scripture says he will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34 and verse 7. That God will by no means, he cannot just excuse the guilty. So how are we as Christians, how are we in the world that we live in, a world that despises accountability, a world that laughs and mocks at responsibility, how are we as professing believers in this day and age to understand this doctrine of final judgment and how should it impact our lives so that we can live in light of its truth so that we find ourselves in those first six, seven verses, 34 through 40, where the righteous are commended and rewarded. That's where you want to be. That's the goal, is it not? You're not listening to this sermon to find yourself among the goats on the left hand of the Savior, are you? Of course not. That would be ridiculous. It would be in the supreme absurdity for you to waste your time listening to this sermon, outwardly worshiping God, spending this Lord's Day in this kind of activity, just not to care and to find yourself condemned and punished. That's not what we want. All throughout the history of man, God has used rewards and punishments outside of just commended obedience for his people to serve him, let me state that again in another way. All men and when I say men, broadly, historically, that means all women, everyone who has ever been born, oh God, reasonable obedience. Reasonable obedience, not like it has to be exchanged and convinced. Reasonable in that God created us as reasonable creatures and we offer Him obedience in the, in, in the nature that we have been made. We have been made reasonable creatures. And we offer up to our God a reasonable obedience. Being able to discern and to And to judge circumstantially things that I need to do, things that I'm responsible for in any given circumstance so that I might be obedient to my God. Make sense? But there are also with that the revelation of the character and nature of our God who is what? Generous who is good even beyond that which is ordinary right this the psalm that i read in our opening of worship the call to worship speaking to the goodness and graciousness of god that god determined in his infinite wisdom to lay beside this common, ordinary obedience that each of us owe God, that he would lay beside that rewards and punishments as motivators, as helps, helps, that he would aid us in our obedience, that that we would be given an extra measure, grace, revelation, right, of motivation to continue in obeying him and doing it, well, beloved with joy. There is, and I'll say this and certainly we have to move on, but I think this is very, very cathartic. This is very therapeutic when you think about it in your mind of how good God is. And how weary each of us may, may be at times in just offering obedience. Growing weary, as Paul says, in doing good. It happens to the best of us. I, I, I can't help but think about that, that theologian, extraordinaire, John Calvin, who suffered from all kinds of physical ailments, often lectured in bed, um, who received, was the recipient of all kinds of abuse. And, and there was his, his honest testimony when, when he left Geneva the first time was, I don't want to go back. I mean, what a just a terrible people. <laughs> but yet, where did the Lord put him? right back in Geneva. That's where his work was. That's where God wanted him. That's where God wanted his service. That's where God, hey, that's where God wanted his talents. Right there. And yet he obeyed and he obeyed under the auspices, not just raw obedience, but that this is where my God who is infinite in understanding and wisdom this is where my God will put me and this is where my God will reward me. Not to do so would put me in peril of punishment. Does that help you understand where you are, what you need to be doing and how you should, how you and I should see the rest of today and tomorrow and the rest of our lives. Brothers and sisters, without a doubt, the gospel of Matthew is filled with this understanding that there is going to be a judgment and and we are going to examine some scripture to see that this this doctrine lies solidly in the special revelation of God. Uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, a, a, a verse that we used earlier on in our study of the parables, verse 21. Is certainly the implication that there is going to be this audience standing before uh, the Son of God. And he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me, On that day, notice, on what day? This day of final judgment. Many are going to say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles on that final day. And again, these are parts and pieces of this, the grandeur of that day. But what Jesus is informing us as he illustrates this, he says, there are going to be those standing before me on that day that will be turned away. They were religious in every sense of the word, but they were not converted. They did not have saving faith in Jesus Christ. They had never repented of their sins. They were never drawn to the word of God. They never desired the word of God like our Savior desired to eat it and drink it and it be his meat and drink in his life. The way that Jesus fought off his temptations, the way that we fight, the believer fights off their temptations is to take and wield the word of God as the sword of the spirit. And they're gonna stand before God and say, I have all of this, this sense of outward religion, but have never, ever bowed their hearts to Jesus Christ. Look at another place. Back up. This is implied. I I just thought of it, but I want us to see it. Go to John 3, I'm sorry, Matthew 3. Look at verse 7. Remember, this is John the Baptist. He's out baptizing outside uh, in the River Jordan, outside the city of the River Jordan, and the Pharisees have showed up, and notice what John says to them. And the reason I don't... I think the wrath to come could be the judgment on Jerusalem, but at the same time, all temporal judgments. What do I mean by temporal judgments? All of the judgments that God has brought in this life are but forecasters and tokens of the final judgment. That is, men know judgment is coming. Even natural men know. Okay. So it, does have an application. Look at verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you? What wrath? I mean, ultimately this final judgment. Wrath in what sense? On all unrighteousness. Unrighteous people. All who have never bowed a knee to the sovereign Christ, Lord Jesus. Who have never put their faith and trust in Him, never repented of their sins. Who's had hearts never longing and desiring Him more than this world. Look at Matthew chapter 11. Uh, this is a description of the unrepentant cities, verse 20 and following. It says, then he began to denounce the cities. What were they doing? They were preaching the gospel there. He said, then most of his, in mo- which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which had occurred in you, they would have repented long ago and sat cloths and ashes. Verse 22. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Continue on. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? Well, you will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained in the days. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Again, what's our Lord teaching us? Our Lord is teaching us, and even by those that have been sent out to preach the gospel, those who had seen the miracles that had been performed in their presence to reject the gospel, the miracles were to set up the gospel preaching. Miracles do not stand alone from the gospel. The miracles highlighted, they emphasized the sovereign lordship of Christ, his power, his faith, glory in the sense that he alone is the one that have been given all authority in heaven when he fulfills that whole redemption when he lays down his life and that as he preaches this gospel of repentance for people to come to him and they reject it it's a greater rejection in, even for those that never heard the gospel or seen the miracles And what does he say? In comparison, remember, what's he doing? He's making a comparison. He said, on the day of judgment, even among the goats, when I attend and address the goats, there's going to be a comparison made. You rejected the plain out teaching of the gospel, even in light of miracles. You will be judged even with a harsher judgment than this city that did not have those miracles. You can see the emphasis here, can't you? Look at Matthew. Let's see, back up to Matthew 10. Similar situation. But again, Jesus is, is continuing to be rejected. And what's he highlighting in this rejection? Judgment day. Judgment day. Um, verse eight, or back up to verse nine. Look. Let me give you the context. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or any even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support and whatever city or village you enter inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city as you enter the house give it your greeting if the house is worthy give it your blessing of peace and if it's not worthy take back your blessing of peace whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out Of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. In light of rejection, Jesus emphasizes the day of judgment. There's a lot at stake, beloved. Eternity is at stake. One's eternity, once this life is over and the next one begins, that's at. I mean, listen. You talk about investments, you talk about exchange. Is there anyone here this morning that would be unwilling to exchange a dollar for $10 million? I don't think so. But that's, ex- that's what's going on when men don't repent of their sins. They decide to keep the one dollar because they think they have liberty. They want to fulfill their lust. They want to do all of these things. And they give up the eternal reward. And they, they continue to take to themselves that punishment not only in this life with all of the secret judgments, but the life to come. Matthew chapter 12, verse 41 and 42, and then we'll move to some confessions. Verse 41, and the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the at the preaching of Jonah and behold something greater than Jonah is here now the queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here What's the point? Well, when Jesus is preaching this, the people that lived during the time of this great repentance of Nineveh are all dead. They've been dead for a long time. And what is Jesus? What, what, what is he saying? He says, "Listen." Those that have already gone on before you that have died, they will be raised up on the final day. That's the general resurrection. That's the nations being assembled before the the Son of Man. He says that Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment. And what will Nineveh do? They will condemn it because they they, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. What will be the great condemnation that Nineveh will tell to that generation of Israel? We repented at the preaching of Jonah, not the greatest of prophets. Remember, he ran, got it swallowed up by a great fish, vomited out on the beach, and then decided, I'm going to take care of the Lord's work. Who said, I didn't want to preach the gospel to Nineveh because I knew they would repent and I knew you were a gracious God. But you had Jesus in your midst, infallible and perfect, impeccable in character, word, and deed, performed great miracles, and you did not repent. So they rise up and they condemn that generation. It's the same way with the Queen of the South. This great woman in history, this queen who traveled to sit at Solomon's feet to hear his wisdom. And what Jesus is saying is, look at the sacrifice, look at the. The labor, the work involved in the queen traveling from her country to Israel to hear the wisdom of Solomon pontificated unto her. And he says that you don't even, you won't even rise up and get off your couch to hear me preach. You won't even walk out of your house. You won't even drive down the road. And she's going to stand up and go, condemned. Brothers and sisters, That we'll look at some further text here as we move along, but I think you can see just by the gospel of Matthew, I hope I am solidifying to you the certainty of judgment. You can write down these scriptures. You can use them in your conversations with others because listen, there is a place to teach final judgment. And what we've seen in the scriptures is that the prophets, the disciples, and uh, Jesus using it when? At the most hardest of hearts. You know, most Christians do not even consider the day of judgment. They don't want to think about it. Oh, no, I can't. Oh, no, no, I don't want to think about God being a judge. I can't even bear to consider it. I mean, most people have testified and give the testimony themselves that, oh, when I see the Lord, I'm just going to run up and jump in his lap. No, you won't. No, you won't. You will be paralyzed by his grandeur and glory and authority. And won't be surprised if the angels strike you down. <laughs> in in, in a, just a humanistic idea, not literally. This lowering of God to make ourselves feel better is a common practice today. Well, let's begin looking at the Christian confessions because what I want you to understand is that throughout the Christian church, throughout Christendom, this has been a viable, essential doctrine for Christians to believe. All throughout the age of the apostles and onward, there has been this confession of. Final judgment that we are on a timeline and whenever the Lord has determined on that day to be and it will be on that day that he has determined that we will all if alive be caught up in the air and changed in the blink of the eye if we are in the grave we will be summoned out of the grave we will be changed in the blink of an eye and we will all stand before him to give an account. Augustine, in his masterful work, The City of God, a classic in Christian literature, states, and I paraphrase just because of, well, it's three paragraphs long and it's like two periods. To paraphrase Augustine, Augustine goes back and forth and he says that judgment is one fact that every man on earth knows. Every man on earth knows. Judgment looms. They don't know how, right? The natural man doesn't know that the son of man is coming back in all of his glory. Doesn't know the details that we just read. But he knows what? That there's judgment. That this, beloved, that what a man does, so he does reap. That's the natural order of this world. And God has instituted it into this natural world. It's the natural order of things. He says this. He says, therefore, the whole church of the true God holds and professes as its creed that Christ shall come from heaven to judge the quick and the dead. And this we call the last day or last time or divine judgment he continues. And when we speak of the day of God's judgment, we add the last, we add the word last or final for this reason, because even now God judges and has judged from the very beginning of human history, banishing from paradise, excluding from the tree of life, those first men who perpetrated so great a sin. Yea. He has certainly, ex- he was certainly has exercised judgment also when he did not spare the angels who sinned, whose prince, overcome by envy, seduced men and became himself seduced. He judges, too, not only in the mass, condemning the race of devils and the race of men to be miserable on account of original sin, but he also judges the voluntary and personal acts of individuals. Men are punished by God for their sins often visibly always secretly either in this life or after death although no man acts rightly save by the assistance of divine aid no man or devil acts and no man or devil acts unrighteously save by the permission of the divine and most just judgment for as the apostle says, there is no unrighteousness with God. His judgments are inscrutable and all his ways past finding out. No one can accuse God, beloved, of being unjust at any point. Look at the Apostles' Creed. Well, there's, it's found in the front of your hymnals, but Listen to the Apostles' Creed because it too addresses final judgment. And this is considered to be one of the oldest creeds we have that dates back possibly to the third or fourth century. But you may not know it. If you do, you can cite it along with me in your head. I'm going to read it. The Nicene Creed, as well. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But listen to one phrase of it. According to the scriptures, and again, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ being the very begotten of God, right? Part of his authority and his majesty. It says, ascended into heaven according to the scriptures and sitteth on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. That's the Nicene Creed. The Athanasian Creed is the same thing. The Athanasian Creed. Listen to this one. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, is so, God, so God and man is one Christ who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day. He ascended into heaven. He sitteth on the right hand of the Father God Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. At whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies and shall give account for their own works and they they that have done good shall go into everlasting life and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith which except a man believe faithfully cannot be saved. Now Catholic doesn't mean Roman Catholic. Catholic in this definition meaning universal Christian doctrine. This is the universal Christian faith. This is the universal truth that Christians hold to. The Osberg Confession. Paragraph 17. I know I may be you know, stretching. I mean I'm just showing you beloved the certainty of this doctrine and how Christians throughout the ages have rested on this doctrine as the truth of God's word. It says, they shall teach at the consummation of the world, Christ will appear for judgment and will rise up all the dead and will give to the godly and elect eternal life and the everlasting joys but ungodly men and devils he will condemn to be tormented without end. You catch the idea also that this punishment is everlasting. We are not annihilationists. That's the other Heresy that has seeped in outside of universalism, this idea that those who go off to punishment will be consumed, will be destroyed by the fire. But the scriptures do not teach that. Everywhere in the scriptures it highlights this idea of this continuing on in punishment, if you will. The Belgic Confession, the same thing. I'm not going to read all of it. The Westminster Confession on the Last Judgment. And thus, we are certainly out of time this morning. Let's bring what we've learned this morning to some application. And we'll pick up next week some application. Well, beloved, obviously, the the motivation of this teaching is to spur, right, the hearers and the readers and all who would come after the fact and read the Word of God to consider their deeds, to consider their lives, What is it that influences me? What governs me? What guides me? What motivates me? If it's not God, the gospel, Christ, and his word, then what is it? Is it the world? Is it the the lusts of this world? Are you willing to exchange? I mean, are you unwilling to exchange the dollar for the millions, this temporal life, for everlasting life? Is that where you are? But that's the case. That's the reality. When Christ is rejected, you are rejecting eternity of everlasting life and and glory and accepting everlasting torment and punishment. That's that's just the, the, the nuts and the bolts of it. What motivates me? And can I be motivated this morning by the reality of a day of judgment? I hope you can. Because you know what? This truth of scripture is just as important as any other truth. You know what? Even natural men that live in the light of judgment altered their morality. Doesn't make them Christians. Christians. People typically fear punishment. The reason we're not all out here killing each other on the road because we don't want a ticket and we don't want to go to jail. Punishment. It's a motivator. It's a real factor. But we're talking about something that's far beyond that. Far beyond that. And the, the, the energy that it gives to us when we embrace this truth. How am I going to treat my brother? How am I going to treat my wife? How am I going to treat my husband? How am I going to treat my children? How am I going to treat my brothers and sisters? How am I going to treat the world that I live in? Who do we give an account to? The Son of Man. The Son of Man. And may the Lord use this teaching in our lives to shape and direct not just our future, but the future of this church. Let's pray. Now, blessed God, it is the teaching of Christ that pierces our hearts, the the, the teaching of your word, and we have been pierced. We pray, Father, that we would have a greater understanding of the final day of judgment, at least as an introduction, but at least it would begin shaping how we talk, what we think about, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, the talents that you've given us. Father, that we would begin recognizing that the sovereign is coming home and that on that day, I shall give an account for all that I've done. Lord, let that be a positive motivation for all of us. Lord, that we would be assembled. We are determined to be assembled on your right hand to to hear The words of our Lord receive us into everlasting glory is our heart's desire. So, Father, we commit today and the rest of our lives to you. Help us, O God. Give us the grace, beginning even right now with this Lord's Supper, give us the grace in communion with Christ to live out the gospel and the kingdom of God in us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.